Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. You can turn to uh, chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, and uh, as we read this chapter, the verses I've selected, I want you to notice something, how many times he uses the phrase, it is better, it is better, it is better. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand and we'll read uh, God's word together. He writes, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, Consider that God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will come after him. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. This is the reading of God's word. Every bit of it is true. And he gives it to us to make us wise. Amen. You may be seated. So what would you say characterizes your life better? Wisdom or folly? Do you actually search after wisdom? Is finding wisdom even on your radar? Or is your life just so scattered and busy and distracted that you feel like that your life is just a constant, just reacting to what is happening. When I was in high school, 
Our youth group used to do this crazy and bizarre scavenger hunt. We would be put into groups of four or five uh, people, and every group was given a single toothpick. And the scavenger hunt was called Bigger or Better. So that we would take our toothpick with our group and go out into the neighborhoods and knock on doors and then tell the homeowners when they entered the door, holding up the toothpick, do you have anything that is bigger or better than this? <laughs> and then, you know, at the end of the night, we would come home with a bunch of junk and uh, some good laughs, you know, like old TV sets and, and a rake and old Halloween costumes. And one time, one group came back pushing a, a broken down riding lawnmower. <laughs> uh, those were the days. Well, the preacher here is using a similar strategy to show us the way of wisdom in an all that is vanity world. And at the end of chapter six, it's like he has been going through all the things that are meaningless, all the vapor, all the chasing after the wind. And it's like he comes to this exasperated rhetorical question climax. And this is what he says. For who knows then what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. And then in chapter 7, he actually is sending us out to answer that question on a better scavenger hunt for wisdom. Out into the streets where real people and real problems live, knocking on doors to find wisdom. You see, wisdom is found in the grind of life. It's not something that you can put on your resume. It's something that you actually have to seek in the rough and tumble of life. You know, it's not automatic if you're a Christian that you're wise. Because many are not. Wisdom has to be sought. Wisdom is hard won. Wisdom includes being moral and doing the right thing. But it goes beyond that. Wisdom comes through painful confrontations, learning from mistakes and suffering and applying the gospel. Every time your car breaks, if you're one of those people that fixes your own car, every time you have to fix it, you become wiser in regard to cars. Wisdom is a skill and an art that is developed by the intentional working out of the gospel in the grind of life. So it's here, here's how we could sum up the entire book of Ecclesiastes. All through the book, he is whittling down all of your searches for meaning. In work, in pleasure, religion, relationships, all the vanities, he's whittling down to a mere toothpick until you actually scream in exasperation with the author. Well, then who knows what is good? And then in chapter 7, he answers the question, wisdom. So you got your toothpick? Let's go knock on some doors. Take your sermon outline. And let's look at this passage. First, wisdom, the acquisition. 
Through this chapter, he gives us several little proverbs of wisdom, saying wisdom is better than folly. And we know that gospel wisdom is always counterintuitive to the way the world thinks. Take the first one. A, the wise seek rebuke. It is better for a man to hear a rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Then he gives this graphic illustration that the song of fools is like, is like thorns on a fire crackling under the pot. That it's vanity. It's gone. So it's better to hear the rebuke of a wise person than the song of fools. Wisdom is to be sought So it is wise to go and find people that you trust and ask them to speak honestly into your life because you're wise enough to know that you don't see yourself accurately, that you need help. However, more often than not, we love the song of fools. We surround ourselves and we only read things that agree with with ourselves. So we're just getting an echo. It's an echo chamber of our own thoughts. You know, many times as a pastor, I meet with people that are struggling in life, struggling in their marriage, and, and I get them to the point, I said, listen, you, you really should go to counseling. And then like about 45% of the time, they don't go. Why? Because they, lo- they love the song of fools. They want, don't want to be told there's something wrong with their life. Do you, uh, do you use social media? Who holds you accountable for what you post? Who have you given permission to speak into what you put out there? Do you brag too much about your kids? Too many political rants? Too many selfies? Too much creating and posting a life that people might envy? A wise person has accountability. They ask for it because they know that folly is not far from them. You know, one of my jobs on the church staff is I evaluate the staff. You know, and and most people don't really want to go through (laughs) an evaluation. You know, uh, the last week, a staff member who is, is good at their job, they're well-loved, they're hardworking, they emailed me and they begged me to evaluate them. They, they're craving honest critique. About a year ago, we had a uh, conflict on our staff and uh, it resulted in a staff member uh, in, in tears, really crushed them. So I uh, met with the, uh, uh, the staff member, the other staff member, and I decided that I was gonna really uh, go straight with them. I was gonna tell them like it was. And, uh, and just shoot straight. And they beautifully handled it well. They were repentant, they were responsive. I, I told them, I said, I think you should go to counseling. I think this is a reoccurring problem. And um, they, were, they were willing, they went to counseling, they're, they're, they're wise, they're willing to, have to look at themselves. I just thought Ray handled it really well. <laughs> so the wise seek rebuke. The wise can hear 
criticism. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. Least you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. The wise person does not freak out when they're criticized. They know they're a sinner. They know they're guilty of cursing others. They know they lack a gracious spirit at times. Jack Miller was a pastor and a seminary professor. And people who knew him well said that he had a very unique way of responding to criticism, whether it was fair or unfair. He said um, that whenever he was criticized this way, or a negative caricature, that he would turn to the person and say, well, you don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of it. He was aware of the darkness in his own heart, and it enabled him to regard criticism, whether fair or unfair, as charitable (laughs) compared to what his critics did not really know about his own life. He was famous for saying to people, uh, I'm a lot worse than you think I am. I'm a lot worse than you think I am, and so are you. See, the wise know their pride. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. The wise are patient. They know the end is better than the beginning. They do not speak authoritatively on matters because the end of the matter may not be known. They know they're guilty of pride and boasting too much, so they wisely seek to be prudent in their speech. Now, I want you to um, raise your hand when I ask you this question. How many of you in the last year have heard someone go off on a rant about politics or racism or masks or COVID? And they go off in this rant And it's almost like as they're ranting, it's like they just drop the mic, like nothing else could be said because they're the authority on all of it, right? I mean, that's just, that is part of our culture every day, every day. Now, raise your hand if it was you. If you raise your hand the second time, then you might be growing in wisdom. D, the wise are not quick to anger. Be not quick in your spirit to become anger, angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. You know, it is not a revelation that we live in an angry culture. That there is division everywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter. Every day, it's like division on politics. Strong division. Division on COVID views, division on wearing a mask, division on racism. Every day, people cancel other people because of their views on things. A friend of mine sent out like a group email, and I just thought it was so funny because it's like, man, that's exactly how I feel. And in the email, they said this, if COVID was a person, this is what I would do. And then they had this clip. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's how you feel, right? All right, that's enough. You can't, here's the thing, you can't punch COVID. But we are punching each other, aren't we? The latest division that Satan wants us to pile on about and punch people for is vaccine or no vaccine. With each side angry at the other and canceling the other. Now now lean in, okay? We have an identity crisis in our culture. We overly attach ourselves and others to views held in an aggressive fashion. We cannot separate the person from their stand on a given issue. Issue and person are the same thing, so we cancel them because we disagree with them. Nicholas Waterstorff is a Christian, and he's a well-known philosopher, and I consider him to be very wise. He tells a couple stories in his memoirs. He says the Hanbergs were a remarkable family. After morning church, they came over to our house, aunts and uncles, cousins, everybody. It was a boisterous crowd. There were home-baked goods in abundance and coffee and the most dazzling intellectual experience possible for a young teenager. Enormous discussions and arguments erupted in our living room. No predicting the topic could be about the sermon or theology or politics or herbicides being introduced to the farms. Music, fishing, education about the mayor or even the town cop. And everybody took part, men, women, children, teenagers, grandparents. And sometimes it was really intense. But when it was time to go, everyone stood and embraced one another before they left. Then he writes this, look on the screen. What strikes me now in retrospect is that the intellectual life was being lived out in our living room, a life of the mind seeking wisdom. It was there that I acquired the ability to separate the person from the argument. To disagree with, to disagree with something someone said is not to attack the person who said it, provided, of course, one's disagreement is respectful. The ability to separate the person from the argument is essential to my profession of philosophy. Philosophy lives on disagreement. Consensus would kill it off. Then on the next page, he tells this story. Jump ahead a few years. Uncle Dewey and Christine were very conservative in their social and political views. Aunt Clara and Bill were very progressive. One year, Dewey and Christine invited Bill and Clara to drive with them to visit relatives in Chicago. On the way, Dewey and Clara got into a ferocious argument over politics in which Dewey angrily insulted Clara. When they arrived, Clara, still feeling hurt and bruised, told the relatives what had happened. This breach in the family had to be repaired. So three or four of the cousins got Dewey and Clara together, had them sit down facing one another, and gently prodded Dewey to apologize to Clara. And then they stood and they embraced with tears flowing down. 
the ability, the wisdom to separate the argument from the person. So here's the gospel for anger. Here's the gospel for divisions. You and I deserve to be punched by Jesus. You have to believe that. Because when I was believing all the wrong things and my behavior was awful, Jesus did not punch me or withdraw because of my viewpoints. He moves towards me and he still does, as wrong as my thinking can be at times. He embraces me with tears. Why? Because I'm his. We're family. A wise person knows they need the gospel for their anger. They've experienced the embrace of Jesus at their most pig-headed, argumentative moments. And then they turn and they give that embrace to others that they would otherwise cancel. Brothers and sisters, this is our time. You want to be salt, you want to be light, This is the issue. This is the gospel opportunity. Can there be a people that love with this kind of wisdom in our world? It's our calling. Second, wisdom, the power. Three days here. All of us are going to experience three days. And wisdom gives us the power to live in all three of them. First here, the day of prosperity. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider that God has made one as well as the other. So the day of prosperity, the day of good things, the wisdom here, he says, is to be joyful, to rejoice, to give praise and honor to God, to marvel in a, in a praised position towards God about the sunset. That God has given you a spouse. That you have children. That the wine is good. That the music is beautiful. That you give praise and honor to God for the good days, for the days of the good. Listen, when, when your life is really going well, when you're really experiencing good things in life, does God come to mind? Does he he jump to the forefront? The wise person is is working that muscle of praise in the day of prosperity. He's straining that muscle. Look what G.K. Chesterton says. When it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or you take them with gratitude. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera, grace before the play or the pantomime, grace before I open a book, grace before sketching, painting, swimming, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Isn't that beautiful? He's working out that muscle of praise and joy towards God. Are you cynical? Are you a complainer? 
I mean, would your family say about you, well, you're kind of bellyaching all the time, kind of grumpy. Work the muscle in the day of good things. Be wise. The day of adversity is the second day. In the day of adversity, he says the wisdom here is to consider. This word means to ponder, to reflect, to slow down, to consider that God is up to something. He's saying don't freak out. Don't curl up in a fetal position. Slow down, consider, look in a Godward direction. You think about in the New Testament, you know the story when the disciples are in the boat with Jesus and and they're crossing over and Jesus is actually asleep on a cushion in the boat and this incredibly dangerous storm comes upon these seaworthy fishermen, right? And what do they do? They completely freak out. I mean, they're actually angry at Jesus for being asleep. They're saying, well, you, you just don't even care, do you? My son, Sam, lives in Atlanta, and, and several years ago, we were on the phone, he was driving his car, and, and he just kind of halfway mentions to me that he had just dropped off a homeless man at the underpass where he lived. He was driving a homeless man to this place. <laughs> and I freaked out. I didn't consider, I didn't listen to him. I was, I, and I start yelling at him at the phone. I said, Sam, are you crazy? You're picking up homeless people in Atlanta? I'm like, I'm like, he could have killed you. He could have stabbed you. He could have robbed you. He could have destroyed your life. And he's like, Dad, Dad, slow down. Chill, okay? He said, Dad, I know this guy really well. We hang out at the same Chick-fil-A. He said, he, his underpass is near where I live. And besides, Dad... <laughs> You have to know something. This guy's like 80 years old. He's like five foot three, and he's pretty much blind. I think I could probably take him (laughs) to consider. Let me ask you a question. How would you characterize your response to the pandemic? Panic? Freaking out? Kind of all over the map? Freaking out and going into panic mode is easy for us. That's why the wisdom to slow down and consider is needed. To consider who is in the boat with you. And that he can speak to the winds and the waves and they obey him. You know, I have tremendously benefited from many people who have slowed down to consider their days in the day of adversity. Some of the wisest, most powerful truths have come to me from people I've talked to who've meditated on their day of adversity about what God might be doing in their life. One man uh, was telling me about his family during the shutdown, that they they counted that they had over 35 sit-down meals together. They had a home full of teenagers and college students and they took turns cooking meals and, and sitting down together. He says, That's never happened in our family. And he says, I know it will probably never happen again. But he says, it has totally changed how we eat together now. It's it's more of a celebration. 
We, we, we talk more, we look each other in the eyes, we tell more stories, and, and no one seems to be in a hurry to get up and leave the table. Another person told me that doing the dishes, taking out the trash, mowing the yard, folding clothes, that all of those things had always seemed like intrusions to them, like they were holding back them from real life. But during the COVID adversity, they learned that ordinary work can bring joy. They used to think that those chores were like fracturing their life, but they'd come to realize that their soul was fractured and that the adversity had caused them to slow down and look at their life. You see, adversity is like this. You're walking along the beach, and the waves push this bottle up onto the shore in front of your feet, and there's a message in there. The question is, will you pick it up and read it? And the wise person picks it up. They don't ignore the day of adversity. They slow down to consider. And the preacher says this. He says, God has made both the day of adversity and the day of prosperity. And that the wise person praises and seeks him in both. They are mindful. They remind themselves of who is in the boat with them. Now think about the last year or so. Think about all the frustrations all the intrusions, all the irritations, all the things that you thought people in leadership were doing were stupid or whatever this or that, and how frustrated and how agitated you have felt, and you've almost kind of like, oh, you're just kind of grumbling and shuffling and like, this is, this, I don't like, I don't want to wear a mask again, and I just can't stand this, and I'm not getting the life I want. Consider. Maybe we are starting to get the life we need. The one in the boat is wise. The third day, the day of death. It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. The sadness of the face can make the heart glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. It is better to go to a funeral than to go to a Super Bowl party. It is better to visit the sick than to go to the bar. It is better to pray for the sick, to know their story, than it is to scroll on Facebook. In terms of wisdom, both activities hold truth and beauty, but one we don't want to look at, we avoid. The wise look at this truth head on. They take it to heart. They know their days are numbered, and looking at it increases their wisdom and their joy now. Going to the house of mourning makes us wise 
because it helps us to hold on to the essential and let go of the trivial. It makes us more sturdy, more compassionate, more able to dance and handle hard times. It deepens our joy. It deepens our ability to love. You ever marvel at how some people are so good at loving other people? Because they've been to the place of mourning. It deepens your love. It helps you to freak out less over losing a little league game or your golf day being rained out or getting a flat tire on vacation. Helps you to think that maybe you should reconcile with people in your family. You know, older generations seem to handle darker times better than us. During the Depression era, many children learned a prayer written in the 18th century. And you know this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now imagine praying that with your four-year-old or your little grandchild. You know, prior to COVID, you might have thought, ah, it's a little heavy. It's kind of, you know, I don't know if I want to pray at bedtime with my kid about death? Have you considered the fact that little kids wore masks in school last year? Have you considered that it might be wise to pray with them? It is not wise to shield ourselves or our children from the day of death. Wisdom can make you sturdy and strong, less fractured, more whole, give you sea legs. Listen, parents, stop rescuing your children from everything hard in life. Stop, stop protecting them so much. Let them suffer. Consider the day of adversity for them. We are, much of our American parenting is just folly. And listen, as a church, um, this is what is so great about a church, because you can actually know about suffering and, and, and the house of mourning that's going on in different people's families, and you can grieve and mourn with them. If you're not on the prayer net, you should be, because you should know what's going on in your church family and be active in praying for them. It's a good, it's good, it's wise. Then he says, he starts the chapter out this way. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now talk about the most counterintuitive wisdom in the entire chapter. I mean, that is crazy. The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. I mean, nobody in the world says that. But yet, here's the power of wisdom. The one who seeks wisdom in the house of mourning is pushed to consider a solid hope. Otherwise, you would despair. So how can the day of your death possibly be better than the day of your birth? Christmas. Christmas is the celebration of the day of the birth of Jesus. And as glorious as it is that God became man and dwelt among us, it is not the best day. 
The best day is the day he died on the cross. And we actually call that horrible day, what? Good Friday. Because we died in him. So our death day has already occurred. We do not bear condemnation. So our death day is better than our birthday. Because Jesus' death opens up for us eternal life. Eternal life. The ultimate day of prosperity and all things new. Here's a picture. This is a, a one-room schoolhouse, an Amish schoolhouse. In 2006, a gunman entered into that schoolhouse and shot 10 children. Five of them died, and then he committed suicide. Within a few hours, the Amish community had visited both the killer's immediate family and his parents, expressing sympathy for their loss. And the Amish uniformly expressed forgiveness of the murderer and his family, and the forgiveness and love that was shown towards the shooter and the family amazed and shocked the world. And they continued to show love and forgiveness to this family, when the mom of the shooter got cancer later in life, they kept their relationship with her and they were the ones ministering to her during her cancer. Four years after this, some scholars got together, you know, like wise people, to study this. And they wrote about it. One of their main conclusions was that secular culture is not likely to produce people who can handle suffering the way the Amish did. They argued that the Amish's ability to forgive and love was based on two very powerful things. First, at the heart of their faith was a man, Jesus, who died for them when they were his enemies. Second was... As a community, they went to the house of mourning many times, mourning their own sin, mourning their own death and suffering, and rejoicing in the grace, resurrection, and the future. That these gospel truths were sung, taught, believed, and celebrated constantly. So much so that at the time of death, in the house of mourning for their own children, they were able to offer life and love. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He has flipped the script so that the day of death is better than the day of birth. That the end is better than the beginning. And because of that, it changes how we live. It changes us to long for that wisdom and that power in a dying world. Let's pray. Father, we can be dull. We need your word. We need your wisdom to awaken us that we might walk humbly before you and have wisdom for all the days of our lives.
Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of worship and a heart of wisdom. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.